Oh, Lord, thank you for the reality of your love, the nearness of your love, and the power of that love to transform our lives. Lord, we want to draw near to you now. And thank you that you are waiting, waiting for us to come to you, to approach you, to present ourselves to you, and to make ourselves available to you. And we ask you, Lord, to do a good work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I do love that song. It's an oldie, but I'm old. And uh, this is what I notice. The old songs that we're still singing today are great songs. Otherwise, we would have just forgotten about them long ago. But uh, thanks to our worship team. Uh, I love that, that power of your love. Well, I am uh, glad to be back. Some of you have asked about where I was, like, did I play hooky? Did I oversleep? Uh, I wasn't here last Sunday because I went to uh, go spend some time with my mom, who is 95 years old and in a nursing home with Alzheimer's, and uh, got to spend some time with my brother and my two sisters as well. So uh, good time and glad to be back. Um, One of the things that I realized visiting my mom is that the future is very uncertain. Frankly, we don't know how how much longer she'll be with us. So we appreciate every visit and every day. And uh, today, we want to continue in this uh, message series that Pastor Joe kind of launched last week called God is Closer Than You Think. Uh, This is kind of an eight-week series. Uh, A lot of it is based on this book called God is Closer Than You Think uh, by John Ortberg. Uh, And how many of you are in a small group, a lighthouse small group that is studying this, this study, God is Closer Than You Think? Would you raise your hand? Okay, I think you're in for a treat. This is really a good study. And uh, if you want to study this, it's an eight-week curriculum. It's a six-week curriculum, actually. Uh, Small group workbook and and DVDs and all that. If your group is not doing it, Pastor Joe's going to offer a special class that's going to go through the same material. I think it's Thursday nights. It starts this Thursday, March 2nd, and it'll be from 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock at the Lighthouse Center. So you can join that uh, Thursday nights for the next six weeks. It'll it'll be a really good study. Also, if you're in a group and you did not yet get the workbook, we have some of the workbooks for free at the uh, ministry center back there, and I encourage you to do that. Uh, There is a book along with it. Uh, You don't have to read the book or buy the book because the the small group curriculum and workbook is sufficient, but if you want to read the book too, we kind of ran out this morning, but we have some more... Maybe we'll have some more next week. Uh, Those books are available for $8, which is really a a great price. Okay, now, why are we doing this thing about God is closer than you think? Because he is. And we've been studying about compassion and about generous justice, and I love those studies. But you know what? If we're to be in it for the long haul, effectively, fruitfully, joyfully, in in the the work of compassion and justice— we're going to need to walk closely with the Lord. This is not just about our effort and self-will and uh, determination, but uh, to live faithfully for the Lord, we need to walk closely with the Lord. And we need to have the kind of relationship with Him. So it's not just like a dutiful, okay, I'm going to do things God wants me to do and I'll be a responsible Christian and all that. It's not that, you know, the, the life that God calls us to, it starts with Him and his initiative, and his love, and and his reaching out to us, and then our response, our kind of coming to him with open hands and open hearts, and uh, letting him in, and letting him do what he wants to do in our lives. And as he does so, he transforms us, and out of that, he calls us to a life of obedience, and following his commandments, and invites us into a life of mission to join with him in, in changing the world. So this all goes together, what sometimes we call it the journey outward, uh, the life of discipleship, obedience, uh, mission, ministry, evangelism, and the journey inward. And both have to go together. So uh, we kind of turning a little bit inward for this series to talk about, well, God is closer than you think. And a lot of this really, to me, if I could put it in one sentence, it has to do with how can I grow in experience in the presence of God? And uh, today, in your worship program, you've got a, a, an outline like this. I want to ask you to take that out. Uh, today we want to talk about this, God's great desire for people. And I want to tell you one of my favorite stories from the Bible, God's great desire for people. Now, I do want to ask you to tr- take this out because on the back of that outline is a Bible passage, and this is going to be our text for today. I think we'll have it on the screen as well. But I want you to take this out because I want us to read parts of this story together. Okay, I'll start it, and then I'll invite you to join in. Oh, little background, little background. Okay, this is a, primarily a story about Jacob, a man named Jacob, and he's a young adult. 
He has kind of a godly heritage. You know who his grandfather was? Abraham. His grandmother was Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, and their story is told in the, in the Bible, in, in the book of Genesis, beginning in chapter 12, when God called Abraham. And uh, then Abraham and Sarah, um, they had a son named Isaac. And then Isaac had two sons, Isaac and his, his uh, wife, Rebekah, and they had twins, Esau and Jacob. Now, although they're twins, one, one is born before the first, right? The first one was born Esau, and so he's considered the older brother. Okay, that's going to be important as the story unfolds. Uh, Jacob, the second one, when he was born, he was born grasping his brother's heel. So if you can imagine this, I guess this is one of those head-first births, right? Uh, so Esau's coming out of the womb, and Jacob is coming out of the womb grasping his brother's heel. So he's given by his parents the name Jacob, which means he grasped the heel. Not a very exciting name, but it's kind of, kind of cool, the story of how he got that name. However, in their culture, the, Hebrew, uh, the, the, the phrase he grasped his heel is a Hebrew idiom. And it came to mean this, he deceives. Literally, he grasped the heel. But it came to mean this, he deceives. And that's important because this, this little baby Jacob is going to grow up to be a young adult who really is a cheat, and he's a deceiver. So he cheats his brother, his older brother Esau, out of two really important things. Uh, one is the birthright, which would have meant like the older brother would get a larger share of the inheritance. Uh, but in a moment of weakness, Esau sells his birthright to his brother Jacob. So Jacob, in a sense, uh, tricks his older brother, uh, and he gets the birthright that should have belonged to the firstborn son. Instead, Jacob gets it. And that means a larger share of the inheritance uh, when it's time. Uh, the other thing that Jacob did was he not only deceived his brother, but he deceived his father. Uh, late in life, their father Isaac is uh, wanting to, you know, he knows his days are, are numbered on this earth, and he wants to bestow blessing on his sons. And the firstborn son would receive a, a greater blessing. And that may have meant leadership in the family. After the dad is gone, the oldest son gets leadership in the family. So Isaac wants to bless his older son Esau and give him the, that blessing that, that belongs to the firstborn son and leadership in the family. And uh, the younger brother, Jacob, tricks his father. And so he receives the blessing instead. The blessing that, that Isaac intended for Esau, Jacob receives it, and it's irrevocable. So now the blessing. So anyway, if you're Esau, the older brother, I don't know how you would react but in the Bible story, I think Esau, it's very human. I don't blame him. He's mad. He is ticked off. And I think he has some good reason because twice his younger brother has cheated him out of something that really belonged to him. And Esau is enraged and he's planning to kill his brother. So Jacob becomes a refugee. He flees his homeland to go to a place he's never lived and headed toward an uncertain future because he's fleeing the threat of violence at home. He becomes a refugee. Here's his story. Genesis 28, verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. I doubt if that's very comfortable. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Those are messengers. The word angel and the word messenger is the same. The messengers of God were ascending and descending on this stairway that's reaching to heaven, and there above it, above the stairway, stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac, and I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying." And your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Your turn. Would you read with me uh, together out loud verses 16 and 17? Ready? When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. 
Okay, thanks. Let, let me go on. Uh, early the next morning, okay, after the dream, early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. This, this is like a, a place of worship now, a little sacred space. I, I love this. This wouldn't be true in the Hebrew, but in the English, the pillar becomes a, the pillow becomes a pillar. It wasn't a very good pillow, but maybe it makes a nice pillar. Okay, verse 19. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Bethel means house of God. He's in the middle of the wilderness, but he says, I'm going to call this place house of God, Bethel. Okay, now you read with me the rest of the passage, starting in verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. Okay, I, I, I love this story. This really is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Uh, and you can see on the outline, I, I just wrote some of the points I want to talk about. But the first one is this, welcome to challenging times. Now, we know this in our nation, these are very challenging times. And whatever was familiar, a lot of things are being, you know, uh, in upheaval. We don't know a lot of what's going to happen now with a new administration. And doesn't it seem like there's a new executive order all the time? And I was with the elders the other night. I was saying, you know what we ought to do? We ought to start issuing executive orders. <laughs> But, uh, you know, a, a lot of uh, chaos. I don't know if I've ever seen our country so divided. A lot of uncertainty about what's going to happen. If, if you are an immigrant, if you are um, a refugee, these, these are obviously scary times and uncertain times. And, and these are challenging times. And what do you do during challenging times? Uh, I want you to see that, that Jacob, uh, here he is. He's a young man, a young adult. We don't know how old he is, maybe in his teens, maybe in his early 20s. Uh, but this young man, Jacob, finds himself a refugee fleeing from his homeland because of the threat of violence at home from his own brother. Uh, of course, Esau has a right to be angry, and, and Jacob has brought a lot of his troubles on himself. Uh, uh, but, you know, his name means he deceives, and that's the story of his life so far. He's deceived his brother, he's deceived his father, and now he's in trouble. He's experiencing uh, uh, the consequences of his uh, unkind and uh, uncalled for actions. So here he is, Jacob the deceiver. He's had to flee from his homeland. He's separated from his family. His brother is, is angry and wanting to kill him. And so he flees from his homeland, a place called Beersheba, and he's heading toward Haran. His parents have told him, go to Haran, seek refuge there. Haran is where his mother is from. And basically they say, go, you know, find, find mom's brother Laban and seek refuge there and find a wife there, find a good Jewish wife. And he's never been there and he's never met them, but he's by himself in the wilderness and he's on this journey to a place he's never been. So he's alone, he's probably afraid, he's apart from all that's familiar of his former life and I guess we could say this, Jacob finds himself at a crossroads, right? He's at the crossroads of his life. He's in the wilderness alone, heading toward this uncertain future, planning to seek refuge among people he's never met, uh, and um, he stops for the night, grabs a stone, uses that for a pillow, because that's the best he could find, and he lays down to sleep. Jacob, welcome to challenging times. Now... We, too, face challenging times. But I want you to think about this. This young man, Jacob, he's at the crossroads of his life, and maybe there will be others still to come. When have you been at a crossroads in your life? When have you been at a crossroads in your life? And I was thinking about this, you know, I can point to several big events in my life when I went through major changes. Uh, you know, the, the time I moved from Southern California to Northern California, that was uh, right after Tina and I got married, and... Uh, I think about four days after we returned from a short honeymoon in, in Canada, we moved from Southern California up to the Bay Area where I became the pastor of a church in Berkeley. And uh, we stayed there 17 years and our daughters were born there in Oakland. And uh, after 17 years, God called us to come up here and that was a, a big decision. I think that was the hardest decision I ever made. Not because I didn't want to come up here, but because we were so content and feel like, you know, felt like God was using us there in the Bay Area, and great things were happening. We were part of a great church, and 
We'd seen that, that ministry grow and flourish. And, you know, and our daughters, it's the only home they'd ever known, the only church they'd ever known. It was a really hard decision, but we were invited to come up here to help plant a new church, which would eventually be called Lighthouse Christian Church. And it was a tremendous opportunity as well. But, but whenever I made those big moves from Southern Cal to Northern Cal or from Northern Cal to the Pacific Northwest, uh, I felt like a crossroads, like, oh my gosh, my future's at stake here. The direction of my life is, could be you know, dramatically altered and all of that. So I've done something of crossroads. And maybe you have too. It doesn't necessarily mean a geographical move. A huge crossroads for me was, was the, the night, it was a Wednesday night when I decided to give my life to Jesus. I had come from a non-Christian family, but I had grown up going to Sunday school. And I got to the point in my life, I was a teenager, where I had to decide, am I going to just pay lip service that, oh yeah, there probably is a God, and Jesus is probably the Son of God, or am I going to get serious about believing in Him, trusting in Him, receiving Him into my life, and making a decision to follow Him? That was a huge crossroads. That was uh, the biggest decision I've ever made in my life. In fact, it also was the best decision I've ever made in my life. Maybe some of you, you're near that crossroads too, trying to decide, does your life belong to you or does it belong to God? Another crossroads is uh, about relationships. And I remember when Tina and I were, were dating and, and sometimes it was difficult and, and sometimes we thought we should get married and sometimes we thought we should break up. And uh, that was a crossroads. And then God led us through that crossroads to get married and We'll have our 34th anniversary real soon, real soon, in June. <laughs> I know when it is. I don't want to show off. <laughs> you think I'm just kind of vague, right? Okay. Um, we reach these crossroads when all that's familiar is being left behind and then headed toward an uncertain future. I was talking with somebody this morning after first service, and and she and her husband are about to move to a different part of the country, and, and I know they're kind of sad about it. Maybe there's some excitement, there's some fear too, and, and, and we know something about Crossroads. I want you to see this guy, Jacob, that's where he's at. He's a young adult. I don't know how old he is. I like to always say, you know, us young adults, but I think that's not realistic anymore. <laughs> I, I want to go to the young adult retreat and say us young adults. <laughs> but he really is a young adult, Jacob, and he's at the crossroads of his life. And he doesn't know his future. In fact, he doesn't even know if he has a future. I mean, you think about it. The night he goes to sleep out there in the desolate, desolate wilderness and, and tries to use that pillow, that, that stone, that, to be his pillow, uh, what's he thinking? What's he feeling? I mean, if I'm him, I'm afraid. What if my brother Esau comes to pursue me to try to kill me out here? Uh, what if an animal attacks me? What if I can't find Haran? What if my mom's relatives don't want to have anything to do with me? You know, uh, he's probably got all kinds of questions, maybe questions about himself. Who am I? I know my name means deceiver, and I've deceived a lot of people, and I'm pretty good at it. But who am I now? Is that really who I want to be? Is that how I want to live? You know, and, and what am I? What kind of person am I? And, and what kind of person am I to be? Maybe he's thinking, where am I going? Do I have a future? And what kind of future is that going to be? And maybe he's got questions about God. Like, where is God in all this? As far as we know from the, what the Bible tells us, Jacob didn't really know God at this point. I mean, we know that he had a godly grandfather and grandmother. We know that he had a godly father and mother. But we're not told anything about his relationship with the Lord. I mean, he, maybe he's thinking, I've heard about God all my life, but I don't really know him personally. I've never seen him. I've never heard him. Now I'm at the crossroads of my life. Now I'm feeling really insecure and shaky and afraid. And where is God? Maybe he's thinking, this mess, I brought this mess on myself. It's really my fault. Maybe God has abandoned me. Maybe he's ticked off at me like my brother Esau is. Uh, maybe he wants to have nothing to do with me. Uh, where is God? What is God thinking? What is God feeling? Uh, and maybe he's thinking about himself. He's thinking, you know, I'm a nobody. And I'm out here in nowhere land, in the, in the middle of, you know, the desolate wilderness. And, you know, this is about the least spiritual place. This is uh, not a place where people go to meet God. Uh, who knows what he's thinking? But I imagine he's got some of those questions. And maybe some of that turmoil and confusion. And he goes to sleep. And I don't know how well he slept. I mean, if I'm going through what he's going, I probably would be tossing and turning and if I had a, a rock for my pillow, that probably wouldn't be too comfortable. But he slept soundly enough that night to have a dream. 
And it was an amazing, life-changing dream. And in the dream, he sees this staircase from earth to heaven. And he sees the messengers of God ascending and descending on the staircase. Now, this is not a staircase he's going to climb. This is not like, oh, here's how you climb your way to heaven, or here's how you work your way to God. It's not that. He's not on the staircase. The messengers of God ascending and descending. And at the top of the stairs is the Lord himself. And the Lord, in the dream, speaks to Jacob. And, and what the Lord says is, you know, what God always says to us, first of all, I am the Lord. I am the Lord the God of your father Abraham and the God of Jacob. I mean, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. But really what the Lord is telling him in this message is he's saying, I haven't forgotten you. I still have my eye on you. I see you. I know you. I care about you. I'm with you. I have good plans for you. Uh, look what he says in, in there in verses 13 and verse 14. He says, uh, I'm going to give you uh, this land that you're lying on. And not only that, you're going to have descendants. Now, this is good news for Jacob because he doesn't know if he's going to even survive that, that night or that week. So when the Lord says, I'm with you, and I'm the God of your, your father and your grandfather, and you're going to have descendants, that's good news because, okay, it means I've got to live long enough to you know, uh, find a partner and have a baby. And, and, and then God not only says you're going to have descendants, he says you're going to have a whole lot of them, a whole lot of descendants. And then maybe the most amazing thing, God says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. And I'm thinking, okay, now he says, God is with me. God has a future for me. And it's a future of blessing and significance. And uh, I don't know, the Lord, this is, you know, this, you know what this is? Amazing grace, right? Sheer grace. God says, as I promised your grandfather Abraham, you will be blessed to become a blessing. Some of you will know the promise that, that the Lord made to his, his grandfather Abraham, it goes like this in, in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That was the promise of God to Abraham, the grandfather, uh, back in Genesis 12. And now, now Abraham is a pretty good guy, though. Jacob is not. Jacob is the cheater. Jacob is the deceiver. And yet God makes the same promise to him. I'm with you. I'm going to bless you. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. I'm going to bless you to become a blessing. Uh, have you ever felt like maybe you're a little bit in Jacob's shoes where you're wondering if God has forgotten you? If he has written you off? Maybe that he no longer wants to be with you? You're thinking, wow, maybe God gave up on me. He broke up with me and he didn't even let me know by a text message. You know, uh, in the dream, the Lord tells Jacob in a big way, I haven't forgotten you. I still want to be with you. I want us to be in relationship. I want us to live together. And I have not forgotten you. I have not put you on the scrap heap. I have not um, unfriended you from my Facebook account. I have not ignored your, your LinkedIn request. I have not taken your picture out of my wallet. I have not deleted you from my contact list. I have not forgotten you. I see you. I love you. I'm with you, I'm going to watch over you, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless you to be a blessing. And it's like God is saying, I've got you. We have a lot of things in our lives that stress us and cause us to worry and feel insecure and afraid, and God is saying, I've got you, I've not forgotten you. Uh, maybe you, like like. Jacob, maybe God would say, we've, got, we've gone through a tough patch in our relationship. Uh, there's been a, a lot of neglect on your part and some outright disobedience and some arrogance where you put your will ahead of my own will. Maybe God would say that to you, I don't know. But, but it's like, you know, even though we've gone through a rough patch, I'm still with you. I haven't given up on you. I've got good plans for you. 
and I've got your future in my hands. How many of you remember there used to be this television commercial, I must have seen it dozens of times, but, but the tagline is this, you're in good hands with Allstate. Okay, some of you remember that? You're in good hands with Allstate. And I think maybe that's what God wants Jacob to know. You're in good hands because you're in my hands. You remember the old Negro spiritual? Uh, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. He's got you and me, sister, in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. And that's a good place to be, especially when everything else is swirling around you and the world seems like it's in a lot of chaos. And then God, in the dream makes these promises to Jacob. I, I call these life-altering promises. These are in verse 15. I think God makes him uh, four promises in verse 15. And here's what God says. He says, I'm with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That doesn't mean, I'm, you know, then I'm going to leave you. It means, you know, be assured. I'm not going to leave you until these promises are fulfilled. And, and I think what I see here, you know what I see here? Four life-changing promises that make all the difference in Jacob's troubled life. I mean, he is at the crossroads of his life, but these promises are going to change him forever. God, first is the promise of presence. God says, I am with you. And then there's the promise of protection. I will watch over you wherever you go. He doesn't know where he's going to go, right? Uh, he doesn't know where he's going to end up, and he's got no GPS or anything, right? He's just going to this place that his mom and dad have told him about. Uh, I will watch over you wherever you go. I've got your back. And then there's the promise of provision. I will bring you back to this land. I'm going to give you this land. There's a promise of provision. And it was, Jacob, you've got a future, your prospects are not very promising from a worldly perspective, but you've got a future, and it will be a good one, because I've got you. I've got you in my hands. And there's this promise, too, of perseverance on God's part. I'm not going to leave you before I've done all that I've promised. Now, I want you to think about that. These four life-altering promises. I'm with you. I'll watch over you. I'll bring you back to this land, and I won't leave you until all these promises are fulfilled. And I just see here like a little picture in the dream of the great heart of God, right? A God who desires to be with his people, a God who desires to be for his people. And that remains, and you may think, well, I, I'm a little like Jacob. I've, I've actually done some deceitful things, and I've sometimes acted selfishly. And when I'm real honest with myself, I have to admit that sometimes I have hurt the people who I love the most, and my family has suffered because of that. Or maybe you've lost a marriage because of it. Or maybe you have a strained relationship with family or extended family. And, and I just love this story because it's so encouraging to me. Like Jacob, he blew it in every way. And yet God says, hey, I'm still with you. I still see you. And I want us to be together. God's desire for his people. Jacob wakes up and the world has changed. Uh, look at verse 16 and 17 again. I, I love this story. Jacob awoke from his sleep and he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Now, I want you to think about this. Where is Jacob? He's exactly where he was eight hours earlier before he went to bed, right? He's still in the desolate wilderness and and maybe there's still some you know, wild animals around and all that. But, but what's changed? The presence of God and his awareness of that presence. What's changed? The promises of God and his fledgling faith where he's starting to believe in the things that God says. And so now that desolate, desolate threatening wilderness is being transformed. Instead of being a place of fear and foreboding, it now becomes an awesome place. He says, this actually is Bethel. This actually is the house of God. It's the gate of heaven. It's the Lord's gate, right? It's the Lord's gate. And it's, it's one of those places, sometimes they're called thin places. The thin places are the places where earth and heaven kind of intersect, where even on this earth you sense the presence of God. 
where God reveals himself or God speaks to you. Uh, he, he realizes that that wilderness, kind of like the middle of nowhere, I'm a real nowhere man living in my nowhere land, right? That place is actually the gate of heaven. That's the house of the Lord. It's a portal of heaven. It's a sacred space marked out on earth for God's presence to dwell. Now, where are those places today? When you go to work tomorrow, if you go to work tomorrow, God is there before you get there, right? Uh, God can show up in your home. Maybe you're just going to wake up early and, and spend some time in the Word and in prayer. God's there. Sometimes you feel Him, sometimes you don't, but He's there. What about here? This is a, what, elementary school gymnasium. We got the basketball hoops up there and all that, right? But this becomes sacred space. If we come here with hearts hungry for God, if we come here and we gather two or three or more in the name of Jesus, he says, where you gather in my name, I'm there. It becomes a sacred space, a portal of heaven, a, a gate of the Lord. And, and this is what this whole thing is about, is that if you, no matter where you are, and you may feel like you're at the crossroads, or you may feel like you're in the wilderness, no matter where you are or where you go, if you know that God is there with you, it's life-altering. It changes everything, right? You think about Jacob. He's no longer afraid. Now he's in awe. Instead of fear and foreboding, he's got wonder. See, and this is amazing. God is here. And now he's beginning to face his challenges, and they're still there. But now he's beginning to face his challenges with confidence, right? Beginning to face his challenges with confidence. And, and that's what I want us to see today. When you live each day in God's presence, then you can face every challenge with confidence. Not because you're just a sunny, optimistic person. Not because the economic forecast looks good. Or because the person you want is in office. Uh, you can face your challenges with confidence because the Lord God who loves you, who sent his son Jesus to die for you, uh, he's with you. He believes in you even when you don't believe in yourself. Jesus says, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to abandon you. I am with you always. And I want us to be together. And it's the presence of God that changes everything. And so God's presence makes all things new. One time I was in Jerusalem, and I went to an ancient uh, church. And in that church, I, I picked up this bookmark that they were giving away, kind of like a little souvenir thing. And I picked up the bookmark, and uh, I can't find it anymore, but I treasured that for a long time. I used to keep it in one of my Bibles. Uh, but this is what it said. Always live in the knowledge that Jesus is present. Always live in the knowledge that Jesus is present. The assurance of his presence will change everything, and your sadness will disappear. The assurance of his presence will change everything, and your sadness will disappear. And that's for us, right? God's presence will change everything. Changes your outlook. Uh, for Jacob, the place is the same, the geography is the same, but God's presence has made all things new. Uh, you, you know where this first came real to me? Uh, when I was a, a young man, I still am a young man, right? But, you know, younger man. And I, I spent a year between college and seminary. And during that year, I worked. And during that year, I was really wrestling with my future. I was thinking about going to seminary, going into ministry, but I didn't really know if that's really what I should do or what God wants. And, and I, I was really worried about how I would ever afford to go to seminary. And anyway, I was going through all this stuff, and I had a full-time job on campus at my college. And I took the week off during what we used to call back then Easter vacation. Now it's called spring break or something like that, right? And that week, I had an opportunity to join with some other Christians and go on a little mission trip. I mean, this is like a, like a five- or six-day mission trip. But it's the first mission trip I ever did. And we went to a place called Mexicali, you know, just on the other side of California in Mexico. And uh, we, went, we were assigned to a little village called Cuernavaca. And when I first got there, and I was with a team of about 15 people, but we were part of this large project with about 1,000 people. And when our team first arrived in Cuernavaca, you know what I saw? just dirt fields. And we, 1,000 people descending on there from you know, Christians who want to do one week of missions, and we're going to set up our tents there, 
And uh, the facilities were pretty primitive, outhouses along the edges of the field. And I, I still remember this. My first thought was, this is a God-forsaken place. This is a God, I mean, you know, no electricity, no plumbing, and, and all that. And I thought, this is a God-forsaken place. And then we spent that week there, you know, from, from that base camp, we would go out every day to our village. Our village was called Lopez Mateo, and we would go out to Lopez Mateo every day, our team of 15 people, and we would do a vacation Bible school, we would do crafts with the kids, we would do Bible stories, uh, we would uh, play soccer with them, although they're a lot better than us, and uh, we, would in, we would knock on doors and invite people to come to a service that night, like a like a worship service, kind of an evangelistic service. And we did that every day for about five days, and, and it was exciting, it was thrilling. In fact, I gave my first sermon that week in Spanish. I mean, I just spoke in English, but I had a translator who <laughs> translated every line in Spanish. Uh, and it was probably only about 10-minute sermon. I bet you wish I still did that, right? Um, but that was like my first sermon. I don't even remember what it was about, but... Uh, we had this very rich, full, busy week. I mean, we worked hard, but every day was so fulfilling because we were doing God's work and we were, you know, touching lives and sharing the love of Jesus. And it was awesome. It was one of the best weeks of my life, even though it was a difficult week. And at the end of the week, we were driving out. We had, you know, packed up our tents and all that, and we were driving out of that, uh, that village to go home. It was Good Friday, the day that we memorialize the, the, the crucifixion of Jesus, dying on the cross for the sins of the world. And as we were driving out of that uh, kind of desolate area, I had this thought. I was wrong. This is not a God-forsaken place. In fact, this place was filled with the presence of God and the love of God. And, and we had such a rich week of fellowship together and worship and serving and sharing, and it was awesome. In fact, later on when I was reflecting on this, I thought, you know what, there's nothing better than being exactly where God wants you to be, doing what God wants you to do. It doesn't get better than that, you know. And if that's in Cuernavaca, Mexico during spring break, where else would you rather be? I remember having this thought, like, I'm so glad I spent this week here rather than surfing at Waikiki, or skiing in Aspen, or hiking in the Alps, or cruising on the Mediterranean. Because for me, that week, in fact, for every week, there's nothing better than being where God wants you to be, doing what God wants you to do, even if it feels like it's a desolate wilderness. Some of you feel that way about your job, maybe. Maybe some of you, you're in a family situation that's really difficult and really a struggle. And some of you, you're, you're just struggling with the loneliness of, of missing people that are no longer here. And some of you are facing the anxiety of, you know, I might lose my job. Or I'm not sure where I'm going to live next year. Or I'm not sure if I should go back to school or not. Or the uncertainty of, will we be able to have children? I pray we'll be able to have children. Some of you, like me, you're, you're facing a, a, trying to love and support someone who has cared for you, but who is now in the final stages of a long life. And I think this story tells me, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know where we're going to go. We're not, we don't know what the future holds. So you've got to grab onto the, the, the presence of God and the promise of God. I am with you. I'm going to watch over you. And no matter where you go, no matter what happens, I'm not going to abandon you. And the presence of God will change everything. Now, you know what changed for Jacob between the time he went to sleep and the time he woke up? You know, between being in the desolate, threatening wilderness and being in Bethel, the house of God, the gate of heaven? You know what changed? He says, surely God is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Notice God was there before he went to sleep, but he was not aware of it. And now he's aware of it, and he's aware of the presence of God, and so now all things become new. It's awesome. It's beautiful. Now, let me go on. Um, at the end of the story, 
Jacob has another response. This is the end of the story, verses 18 to 22. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He's just beginning to learn to, you know, I'm going to worship God. This is going to be a special place. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Now this place, he's thinking of it, uh, not the barren wilderness. Now this is the house of God, Bethel. And then Jacob made a vow. He's making a promise to God. L listen to the promise. If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household. In other words, if God fulfills the promises he made to me, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. I'm going to build a, a place of worship here if I ever get back here. And of all that you give me, Lord, I will give you a tenth. Now, you know what he's doing? He's dealing with three issues we all have to deal with as well. The first issue is lordship. Who will you serve? He says, the Lord will be my God. I mean, up until now, I've been my God, and life has revolved around me, and I've just lived for myself and my concerns and, and what I want when I want it. And he says, but uh, now the Lord will be my God. That's lordship, right? And then, and then he's starting to establish a place of worship. He's still in the wilderness, but he says, you know, if God fulfills all these promises, I'm going to build a place of worship here, which he later did 20 years later. Uh, but, but he's beginning to deal with lordship and with worship. You ever thought about this? Everybody's going to serve somebody, right? Bob Dylan taught us that. You've got to serve somebody. But who are you going to serve? And Jacob's starting to say, you know what? I think I'm going to serve the Lord. That's lordship. And... And everybody's going to worship something or someone, right? And now he's saying, you know what? I'm going to worship the Lord. And we're all going to worship something. But he says, I've been basically worshiping myself and my will and my agenda and my desires. And now I think I'm going to worship the Lord. And then the third big issue he deals with is stewardship. He says, he says of everything that God gives me, I will give a tenth to the Lord. That's a tithe. The word tithe means tenth. Now, you think about Jacob. At this point, he's got nothing. Right? He's got no home, no bed, no house, no wife, no kids, uh, no job. He's got nothing. But he does in faith say, God, if you're faithful to me and you provide for me and you keep these promises, everything you give me, I'm going to give you a tenth. That's called a tithe. And it's, it just means what God gives me belongs to him. What I own, actually, it, God owns. And I'm going to demonstrate that I believe that and I acknowledge his ownership by giving him a tenth to the Lord in his work. Okay? Now, those are three big issues we've got to face as well. Lordship, worship, stewardship. Now, does it bother you at all that the way he says it is, if God does this, if God does that, if God does that, then, then I'll you know, make him my Lord, my God. Um, and that bothered me a little bit. I thought, boy, that seems so like such an immature, self-centered kind of faith. And uh, you know what helped me? One time I heard a seminary professor talk about this passage, and he said, we want to be hard on Jacob because his faith seems so self-serving. But then he said this, we have to remember this, that at this point in his life, Jacob is in the kindergarten of God. Right? His faith is not mature. He hasn't walked with the Lord, you know, more than a few minutes or a few hours. Uh, so he's not very mature. He's not, you know, like, I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what happens to the ends of the earth. He's not there yet. So there feels a little bit like he's a little bargaining a little bit. I, I want to give him some grace here because the guy's in the kindergarten of God. He's just learning how to walk with God. But he does identify the right issues, right? As I walk with God, I've got to deal with these issues. Lordship is Jesus Christ, Lord of my whole life. Worship, who will I worship? Who will be of ultimate concern and loyalty to me? And stewardship, do I really believe that all that I have and all that I am belongs to God? And will I honor him by giving at least a tenth to him in his work? Okay. Now, did you know that Jesus alluded to this story in his ministry? In fact, real early in his ministry. There was a time early in his ministry when Jesus was calling disciples and he met a man named Nathaniel. And, and Nathaniel, after talking with Jesus for a little bit, began to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And in John chapter 1, at the end of John chapter 1, verses 49 to 51, this little dialogue takes place between Nathanael, the new disciple, and Jesus. Nathanael declared to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, Will you believe because you, I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You're going to see greater things than that. And then Jesus says this, John 1:51. Then he added, Very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, meaning himself. Now, now Jesus is talking to Nathaniel. He's a Jewish boy. He, he knows the Bible. He knows the Old Testament. He well knows the story of Jacob and, and the staircase and the angels of God ascending and descending. Jesus says, you follow me, you're going to see heaven open and you're going to see the, the, the messengers of God Ascending and descending, not on the staircase, on me. I am the staircase. I'm the, I'm the one that, who connects you with the heavenlies. See, Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah, and I am the Son of God, and so you come to me, I can connect you with the Father. You come to me, and you know that I am God, and I'm going to be with you always, and I will never leave you or forsake you. In fact, I'm going to die on the cross so that you can be forgiven of your sins and you can be reconciled with your God and, and maybe you had no hope or no meaning or purpose before and maybe your life was filled with anxiety and fear, but you connect with me and I'm going to be with you always and I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit to live within you and you're never going to be alone again and life will never be the same again. I'm going to read you something. I was very moved by this. And like so many good things, I found it online. Um, it's a story, oh, it's an article uh, by a woman named Dana Johnson. And this is, the article is called, she has a ministry to divorce people, to encourage divorce people. And uh, she wrote this article called Three Beautiful Truths, Three Beautiful Truths Every Divorced Christian Needs to Know. Now, you may not be divorced, but I think you can, you can really be blessed by what she says. The third truth, I don't have time to talk about the first two. The third truth that every divorced Christian needs to know is God is the redeemer of all things. Let me read you what she says. Throughout scripture, we are given so many promises to show us that there is always hope. Romans 8 tells us that all things work together for good for those who love God. Zechariah chapter 9 tells us that God will repay two blessings for each of our troubles. In John chapter 11, Jesus proclaims that he is the resurrection and the life. He will take you from the death of divorce and breathe new life into you. And, and 1 Peter chapter 5 says that the suffering won't last forever, but that one day Jesus will put you together and put you on your feet again. And when this journey began for me nearly six years ago, she's talking about uh, the journey of divorce, I wasn't sure I believed those promises. God had failed me or so I thought. I had dedicated my life to him, and the blessing I received was a husband who was unrepentant of his adultery. I was finished with God. But he wasn't finished with me. Kind of reminds you of Jacob, doesn't it? He pursued me relentlessly and called me to get my security from him. He gently reminded me that he has been with me all the days of my life and that he wasn't going to leave me now. And he reminded me that he has great plans for me. I was a broken, rejected mess. But God reminded me that he loves me, that I am his chosen child, his treasured possession. He told me that I am the apple of his eye in Psalm 17. In Ephesians 2, he reminded me that I am his masterpiece, created to do good works. And as I chose to surrender... He began to work in my heart and in my life. And I have seen his provision every step of the way. He has flooded me with his peace. He has given me a much deeper understanding of his love and grace. A more intimate relationship with him. He has taken my pain and given me a ministry. I truly believe with Job that the second of the second half of my life will be more blessed than the first. 
and he wants to do the same for you. All you need to do is surrender. Ask him to do a mighty work in you so that he can do a mighty work through you. It's like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Ask God to bless you so that you can be a blessing to others. And I promise, I promise he will answer. You know, this Wednesday is what's called Ash Wednesday. It's the beginning of a season called Lent. And uh, we have this journal for you. It's free. This was prepared by uh, Pastor Nancy. It's called 40 Days with God. I don't think you can read what's in here, but if you look at it at the right angle, it says, I see you. It's the message of God. There's some other kind of secret messages like that embedded in the journal. But as we begin uh, this Wednesday, uh, March 1st, we're going to enter into 40 days of Lent. And it's all explained in here. But I want to really encourage you, if you want to experience more of the presence of God, uh, you might consider this, 40 days with God. What you'll find in here is uh, uh, scripture passages, devotionals, places to journal. And I think we're going to enter into this wonderful season. And, and, and these devotionals and scripture passages are going to kind of correlate with our Sunday messages during this series, God is Closer Than You Think. Uh, you can pick these up for free at the back table. If we run out, we'll have more next week. But I, that's my hope. You know, when you really enter into the presence of God and claim the promises of God, everything's different. God can transform you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you never wrote us off and that you have not forgotten about us. For some of us, Lord, it's, it's been a long time since we've really turned our whole attention to you. For some of us, Lord, we've been so distracted and busy that we haven't experienced much quality time with you. And Lord, I know too that for some of us, we are facing huge challenges. For some of us, we feel like we're at a crossroads now and it's a time of anxiety and uncertainty. And I pray, Lord, that you would just help us. We know you're present, but help us like Jacob to be aware that God is in this place and that God still remembers me and that God still watches over me and that God will be with me as I leave this place and as I enter into my places this week. And Lord, may we experience that you really are closer than we think, closer than we realize. And help us to remember, Lord, you desire us. You desire to be with us. Draw us near to you as we draw near. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you that because you're with us, all things become new. Let us walk in that newness. In Jesus' name I pray.